You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. There's a children's story with a lesson big enough for everyone. And it's called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon by Jack Kent. I'm just curious, anyone ever heard or read that book? All right. It's about a young boy named Billy Bixby. And he wakes up one morning to find a small dragon sitting on his bed. It was about the size of a kitten. And this dragon was very friendly. And so... Like any young boy, he was excited and he saw the dragon and it was wagging its tail and Billy patted it on the head. And the dragon was so excited to have a friend in Billy. So Billy, excited, he ran downstairs and he told his mother about the dragon. But she said, there's no such thing as a dragon. And she said it like she meant it. So Billy, like, okay, mom said there's no dragon. So he goes back upstairs but the dragon was still there. But this time Billy didn't pat the dragon because if there's no such thing as something, it's silly to pat it on the head. Well, then the dragon starts to grow. And so Billy goes downstairs and he starts to eat breakfast. And the dragon follows him and it starts to eat up all of Billy's pancakes. And no one, not mom or Billy, acknowledges the dragon sitting on the table eating the pancakes. And because no one acknowledges the dragon, it continues to grow. So after breakfast, Billy goes back upstairs to brush his teeth. And by the time he comes back downstairs, the dragon has filled up the hallway. This little dragon that started out the size of a kitten is now filled up the whole hallway. And Billy says to his mother, Mom, I, I didn't know dragons grew so fast. But his mother doubled down and said, there's no such thing as dragons. So later that day, mom uh, tries to vacuum and tidy up the house, but she finds it difficult to maneuver around this rather large dragon who has taken up the first floor. And so Billy's mother has to go outside the front door and in through windows just to find her way around the house. But she still will not acknowledge the very large dragon in the living room. And as the story progresses, the dragon grows so large it overtakes the house and it wears the house on its back like a shell. Imagine like a turtle. But this is a big dragon. And Billy and his mother are now at the very top of the house looking out the window as the dragon stands up and starts walking down the street with their house. Well, later that day, Billy's dad comes home. And the house isn't there. There's only a foundation. And a neighbor tells him that a dragon has taken off with the house and it's gone down the street. And so... Mr. Bixby gets in the car to chase after this house, and he finally finds them. He walks up the back of the dragon all the way up to where his, uh, his wife and Billy are sitting there. And he said, how did this happen? And Billy said it was the dragon. He just kept growing and growing, and he walked off with the house. And Billy's mother started to say, there's no such thing as... And Billy cuts her off, and he says, there is a dragon... A very big dragon. And Billy patted the dragon on the head. And the dragon 
so starved for attention, wagged its tail. And just as quickly as the dragon grew, it started to shrink back down to the size of a kitten. And then Billy's mother said, I don't mind dragons this size. Why did it have to grow so big? And Billy said, I'm not sure, but I think it just wanted to be noticed. Here's the moral of the story. Inattention, willful ignorance, this sin of omission can be just as destructive as sins of commission. Meaning, the things we left unattended, ignored, can grow and grow and grow. And eventually, what starts off as a small problem becomes a really large, big problem. See, problems don't just go away because you ignore them. Think about a bill. You get a bill in the mail. Do they still do that? Do they still send bills in the mail? And if you decide, listen, I don't want to pay this bill, does it just go away? No. You get a second notice. Hey, you still owe us $35. And if you say, hey, I'm not going to pay that, what happens? The next time you get that bill, it's like $50. There's a late fee and interest, right? And before long, whatever's connected to that bill gets cut off, right? You no longer get that service. What this story is telling us is pay attention or else small problems become big problems. This morning we're continuing in our series in Ecclesiastes and we're calling it the search for meaning. And this morning in chapter 5 the preacher is confronting a very big problem in our culture. The meaninglessness of mechanical worship. Attendance without attention and affection. See it's entirely possible to play a game called religion Instead of wholehearted devotion to God. And just like the dragon in Billy Bixby's house, this is a problem we can't ignore. See, if we just play games with God, if we don't pay attention to how we worship the Lord, if we believe the lie that God is not concerned with how we approach him, it will become a really big problem. This is an area where we need focused attention and a steadfast resolve to consider what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, if you're just joining us in this series of Ecclesiastes, that word Ecclesiastes is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Kohelet. And Kohelet means the gatherer, the preacher, the philosopher, the teacher. It's the one who assembles people together to give instruction and so we're calling him the preacher and this preacher has spent a lifetime observing life under the sun and he's written this book in order to help us learn how to live so in chapter one the sledgehammer drops it's the demolition phase of the remodel everything's got to come down sledgehammers slamming against the wall the two by fours are breaking there's dust everywhere and he tells us everything absolutely everything and life is marked by this Hebrew word hevel. We translate it vanity or meaninglessness or brevity. And he's saying our lives are like a whisper. We live 
and that fraction of time between forgotten and will be forgotten. Generations past have long since been forgotten and generations will come and they too will be forgotten and you live in this tiny moment in between there. Nothing lasts, legacies fade. And on first glance it sounds like a deconstruction of his faith. But rather what he's doing is taking an honest look at life in a broken, sin-soaked world. And he wants to teach us That most things in life don't matter. He wants to teach us what matters most in a world where meaning is elusive. What he wants to do is break that habit where we trivialize the significant and we make uh, the significant trivial. We do this all the time. We take insignificant things and we elevate them to the place of significance. And we take significant things and we... Bring them to the very bottom of the basement. Then in chapter 2, the preacher walks us through this lifelong journey to see what, if anything, in this world will provide lasting satisfaction. And here's what he found. God gives us a lot of good gifts, and they're meant to be enjoyed. But the problem is, we often take the good gifts of God and we make them God-sized things. We try to find our soul's satisfaction in the gifts instead of the gift giver. Then in chapter 3, the preacher asks, well, if life is plagued by vanity, then what are we to do with our time? And here we learned that seasons come and go. And we should become expectant That there'll be ups and downs, ebbs and flows. And to receive every minute of the time we've been given as a gift from God. And to learn the rhythms of gratitude and joy. Then in chapter 4, the preacher made observations about life in a broken world. Life that's marked by injustice and envy and loneliness. And And he taught us how to live despite the brokenness. And now... In chapter 5, he turns the conversation to, well, how do we worship God? Does God care about how we approach him? And as we look at chapter 5, we'll see three directives, three things the preacher will tell us that God is concerned about. So first in verse 1, the preacher will tell us to pay attention to our steps. In a culture where people waltz into worship without reverence or thoughtfulness, the preacher says, Watch your step. If you think God is indifferent to how we approach him, the preacher says, think again. And then in verses 2 through 7, the preacher will tell us to let your words be few. See, we are quick to speak and slow to listen. It's part of the sin nature inside of us. We often heaped up, heap up empty phrases to God because we think our verbose Word-filled prayers will be more religious and acceptable to God. And in the midst of all the noise, the preacher says, be thoughtful and let your words be few. And then finally in verse 7, the preacher will tell us to stand in awe of God. He's going to ask, does God have our whole hearts or are we divided? Do we play games with God? Do we approach God with breathtaking reverence? And he's going to tell us that God's extension of intimacy, that invitation to draw near to him, is never permission for flippancy. 
God's extension of intimacy is never permission for flippancy. And so the preacher says, stand in awe of God. Three directives this morning. Pay attention to your steps. Let your words be few and stand in awe of God. Let's start together in verse 1. Hear again the word of the Lord. The preacher writes, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. That first word there, guard, it means to protect. It means to be aware. It means to have a proactive attention. It means to keep something steady. This word shows up really early in the Bible. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's our word, guard, to keep it. And the garden, which was really the first temple... The first place where God and man could dwell together. The first meeting place. Man is given a job to work and keep the garden. And so on one hand it's a work of cultivating. To tend to the garden. To grow good things in it. To make it a home. And also to protect it. To preserve it. To keep it. We're meant to pay careful attention to what goes in and what goes out of the garden. And we all know how that turned out. We were inattentive. It was a sin of omission. And the the serpent came in and destroyed everything. We see this word come back up again when the Levites were commissioned to serve as priests. The same words come back again. The priests are to work and keep, cultivate and protect the temple. And now a similar command is given to the worshiper. Pay attention, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. The same writer, Solomon, who writes Ecclesiastes, also writes the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And he says, pay attention to your steps. Think about how you walk in life. Guard your steps. Don't go off the path of the righteous. So much foolish living living is given because... We don't pay attention to where we're going. Now he says, pay attention. Keep your steps. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. The preacher knows that the default position of our heart is to be thoughtless. To give no attention to how we approach the Lord. We just get uh, set in our ways into the routines of life. And when we do that, we grow inattentive. See, routine is, on one hand, it's a good thing. Part of that is natural. Human beings, part of the way God has made us, is that we learn efficiency and effectiveness in our routine. So when something is brand new, and we've never done it before, we give careful thought and attention. But as we grow accustomed, as we get into a routine, as we grow comfortable, we learn to streamline our processes and we no longer give the same careful attention that we once did. Think about driving. You remember the first time you started driving and you got behind the wheel, you know, 10 and 2, right right there at the top. You checked your mirrors. Some of you even walked around your car and looked at the tires and made sure everything was all set. You got in the car, checked your mirrors. Every time you turned, you used your indicators, right? Every single time you were thoughtful, you looked at the back mirror, the side mirrors before you made a turn. 
You mapped out in your mind all the directions of where you were going. And driving was the only thing you thought about. You gave careful and thoughtful attention. But now, after years of driving, no one even thinks about driving. You get in the car, you don't check the mirrors. You don't use your turn indicators anymore. You don't even think about where you're going. You can get from point A to point B and then think, how did I get here? I don't even remember the route I took. It's so automatic. And part of that is natural. It's part of how we streamline processes. If we had to take every single process we do and treat it like the first time, we'd never get anywhere. But it's a big problem when we do the same thing with how we get to the house of the Lord. preacher is saying we have this tendency to make worship routine, automatic, and mechanical. And that kind of thoughtless, inattentive worship, the preacher is saying, is meaningless. It's the vanity. It's, it's plagued by Hevel. See, in a culture where we waltz into worship casually, without reverence, no thought about God, Solomon is saying, Slow down. Give attention. Don't make that routine. Don't make that mechanical. Tread carefully and thoughtfully and attentively as you approach God. This idea of guarding your steps is a metaphor for thinking about your actions and the posture of your heart. Now in addition to guarding your steps, he also adds this. Look at the last half of verse 1. To draw near... To listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Now, what does it mean to listen? Listening is more than hearing, right? Hearing is just like, do your ears work? But listening is hearing with the intention of obeying. See, listening is actually much more a posture of the heart than it is an auditory process. It means to hear with the intention of obeying. God deserves to be worshipped with a humble heart that's ready to listen. Not just hear his words, but, but you're hearing them going, whatever the Lord tells me, I'm going to obey. That says much more about our motives than anything else. See, God's not interested in superficial, insincere sacrifice. That's what the the sacrifice of fools is. It's routine. It's saying, hey, listen, I know I need to offer this animal, so I'm going to do what the law requires. I'm going to bring it. But it costs my heart nothing. And it just brings it to get it done, get it out of the way, and move on. The Bible tells us over and over that God is interested in the worshiper's heart. Look at Psalm 51, that famous psalm where David is writing about the contrition and brokenness of his heart after the sin with Bathsheba. And David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He's not saying that he didn't have to offer sacrifice. He, he did offer sacrifice for his sins. But he realizes that those sacrifices mean nothing unless, what he says right here, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What is the sacrifice of a fool? It's it's coming to the Lord 
to the house of the Lord with the right sacrifice, but the wrong heart. On the surface, it looks the part, but inside it's meaningless. The preacher says, as you draw near to the house of the Lord, come with a heart ready to listen. It's more than hearing. It means you come to hear and obey. It means you come with a presupposition, which means a a pre-belief, a first belief. As you come in, you're going, listen, I know I don't have it all figured out. I know that my heart has sin in it. I know that there are practices in my life that aren't right. I know I have false beliefs. And I am coming today to have all of that falsehood confronted with the truth. Meaning, you're expecting conflict. You're expecting a confrontation. If weeks go by and none of your beliefs and none of your practices are confronted with the truth of Scripture, that's inattentiveness. There are problems. It's so easy to go through the motions of religiosity. We can get into that routine and ritual of religion. We can go to church on Sunday and do it all without the humility, reverence, thoughtfulness, and genuine worship to the Lord. And that kind of attendance without attention and affection is meaningless worship. The reformer Martin Luther said that the natural default position of the human heart is toward religion. And here's how he defined religion. If I do this, then God will do that. It's like making God a vending machine. If I just put in the quarters of my religion, then God is obligated to pump out the treats that I want. God is not a cosmic vending machine of cause and effect. You can't manipulate the God of the universe. In verse 1, the preacher says, guard your steps. Be thoughtful as you go to the house of the Lord. The same writer is the same man who built the temple of God. Everything about the temple was designed to make you think. As you approach the temple of God, you were immediately in recognition of its grandiosity and its majesty. It was glorious. If you read through the instructions of the temple, it is spectacular in all of its detail. The materials in the temple were of the finest gold and bronze and silver. The the wood used was exotic. The tapestries were unmatched. The Bible says that when the temple was built, the Lord specifically chose the finest architects and craftsmen in all of Israel. Nobody would have walked up to the temple and said, eh, I've seen better. It was stunning. And it would dwarf you in size. And everything about it was meant to communicate to you, you and God are not the same. You and God are not on equal playing field. He's not your peer. Not only is he bigger and more powerful than you, he is holy and perfect. Everything about the temple was meant to say God is totally other than you. Nobody rolled up to the temple with a Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Right? No one did that. Now I know things have changed. We don't go to the temple anymore. I mean, for crying out loud, 
we roll up on Exchange Street, park in the library parking lot, and we gather in a boys and girls club gymnasium. There's nothing about this gym that makes you think this is the house of the Lord, right? I get all that. I get it. But we have something the Jews of the Old Testament didn't have. See, we don't need the grandeur of the temple to evoke meaningful worship in us because we have the grandeur of the gospel. We have something far greater. The reality that God sees you and me in all of our sin and all of our pride and yet he sees us and loves us and in Christ has paid for all of our sin. That Jesus himself is the once for all sacrifice. And that reality, reality alone should be enough to stir and evoke in us the most sincerest and genuineness of worship. It should stir in us attentive, affectionate worship. So what does that mean practically as we pay attention to our steps as we approach the Lord? First notice that the preacher said, guard your steps when you come to the house of the Lord. Not if you come to the house of the Lord. Regularity has always been a part of the people's worship in the Lord. When you come, not if you come. See, you can't worship the Lord with proper attention and affectionate worship if you're absent. If you're not here, it, it, it completely wipes out the ability. You can't even think about your steps because you're not walking to the house of the Lord. There is a reason the church has gathered weekly for millennia. And it's not simply to give pastors a job. It has much more to do about us and our need for regular worship. See, when the church was established after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the church began to gather weekly on the Lord's day. And from very early on, see, this isn't just a modern problem. Very early on, people started to forsake the weekly gathering. That's why the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. That's one of the things I love about the New Testament. It's right off the bat, it's like the church was broken in its inception. People immediately began to neglect the gathering of God's people. Friends, not only... Has regular church attendance on the whole declined in the last two decades among the general population? So, you know, they do these surveys and they just poll people all over, regardless of their religious affiliations, and say, hey, do you go to church? Well, that number on the whole has began uh, over the last 20 years has dropped precipitously. But it has also dropped among the very religious. So of those people who say that Christ matters to them, that their faith is exceedingly important to them, of the people of the most religious uh, folk, their regular attendance has also dropped. Now hear me. I am not advocating for some legalistic 52 Sundays a year, and if you don't come, there's public shaming and shunning for your truancy. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't hear me. 
say that. I am saying you should give thought to how many Sundays a year out of 52 you need to make in order to actually say with truthfulness and legitimacy that you are committed to the regular gathering of the family of God. It's just a reality. We, prior, we prioritize the things we're committed to. The things that have your most deepest and sincerest commitments, they're just non-negotiable for you. You plan your life around all of those things. And what the scriptures are asking is, is the regular weekly gathering of God's people part of those non-negotiables? How many Sundays a year would it take for you to honestly, legitimately say, I am committed? Is it half? That's 26. Is it 60%? That's 32. 75%? That's 40. What is it for you where you'd go, like, if you were to take that same percentage on anything else and say, I go to work 75% of the time. What about the other things you've committed to, right? I'm, I'm just... At some point, we have to ask that very real, practical question. So I'm not saying be legalistic about it. But I am saying, are you thoughtful about it? Second, how do you, have you considered your posture as you enter into the Lord's house? Very practically, are you on time? Now listen, I know, like, I just hit church attendance and being on time, and some of you are like, I'm late and I don't make it all the time, and, and so now you're judging me. No, I'm not, I'm not judging you. This is, this, this is not to be uh, judgmental. This is to say, practically speaking, how do we understand what it means to guard our steps as we go to the house of the Lord? To not be thoughtless, but to be thoughtful. And I'm just as guilty, especially on this second point. I have to be here every week, but, but not being thoughtful and prepared because like in a lot of ways, this can become a job for me. Do I settle my own heart? Do I prepare my own heart as I'm walking in or am I preoccupied with setup and who's here and who's not here and, and all the other millions of things that have been going on in my head? I am just as guilty of going through the motions and making this routine. Just by way of reminder, we begin at 10 a.m. I know some of you thought, oh, isn't it 10.15? It's not. It's 10 a.m. Now here, why does that matter? Again, I'm not pointing fingers. There are going to be days legitimately where you go, listen, pastor, I did everything I could. And you know how we live in a sin-soaked, broken world? Everything broke on the way to church today. And so it's just by the grace of God that we slept in here. I get it. There are days like that. Okay? But I'm also saying, aren't there times when we're just not preparing or being thoughtful about how we live our lives the day before as we enter into the Lord, where we sleep in, where we don't make proper preparations? And when we come in late, we're often rushing in. We're missing a part of the liturgy. There's a lot of thought that goes into the composition and the makeup of our gatherings. It's not just get here for the sermon. All of it matters. Have you given thought to how you prepare yourself the day before to come to the Lord's house? 
Are things ready? Are you getting up with enough time? Are you coming in with a heart that is prepared to admire, adore, and express affection to the Lord? And friends, let me tell you, that doesn't just happen automatically. It takes a lot of heart-level work to get to that place. We don't do it by accident. We do it by paying attention. And third, come with open ears. Remember the preacher said to draw near to listen, not simply show up. Psalm 46. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. That phrase that you have given me an open ear. If you translate that literally, you know what it means? Ears you have dug for me. Here's what that means. It's, it's an evocative metaphor saying that God has to dig a channel through the hardness of our hearts so that we can be ready to listen. So what he's saying is we don't come default ready to listen. It takes a lot of work in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Eugene Peterson, who just often writes so poetically in his book, Work in the Angles, speaking on this passage, says, God is speaking and must be listened to. But what good is a speaking God without listening ears? So God gets a pick and a shovel and digs through the cranial granite, opening a passage that will give access to the interior depths, into the mind and heart. So as we come into worship, it's saying, Lord, channel away. Dig through, use whatever means necessary to get to my heart so that I can listen to you this morning. How do we worship God in spirit and truth? The first thing the preacher says is pay attention to your steps. Now points two and three will be much quicker. Look at verse two. The writer says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are, on, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. If we're supposed to give attention to the manner in which we approach God and come with hearts ready to listen, then it makes sense that we would give thought to our words. Right? It's impossible to listen and speak at the same time. If you're always talking, you can never be listening. Have you ever heard of the great Shema? It's this Jewish prayer. For the observant Jewish people, it's a daily prayer, a daily affirmation of the oneness of God. It comes from Deuteronomy 6 and it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. That first word, uh, the Shema, means to hear or to listen. It's an affirmation that states... Hear, O Israel, this most important truth that the Lord is one. There's not many gods, there's one God. See, if there's many gods, you give a portion of your heart to every God. You've got to appease this God, this God, and this God. But what does he said? There's only one God. So therefore, you give your whole self, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, an undivided heart to an undivided God. A singular love. And a singular focus to a singular God. He deserves and demands our non-fragmented, non-compartmentalized, undivided, wholehearted, holistic worship to God. 
And that begins by listening before speaking. That means we recognize to whom we're speaking. That's why he said, God is in heaven and you are, our, you are on earth. In other words, know your place. Know who you are. Be thoughtful and measured with your words. Now, I don't think God has a running word count. I mean, he does because he knows everything. It's not like a word document where you can see the, the word count on the bottom. There, there's not a magic number of words, okay? Don't legalize this. Don't make this a formula. He's not, that, that's not what he's saying. Like, there's like a word count. You got to stay under 140 characters. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying, don't heap up meaningless, empty phrases to God. So that you'll sound religious or pious. Empty words are just that. They're empty and meaningless. Do you know Jesus, right before he taught his disciples how to pray, he taught them how not to pray. Chapter Matthew 5, verse, uh, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go to your room and shut the door and pray to your, father in he- uh, to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. But when you do pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Everything Jesus is saying here. Is about prayerless prayers. On the surface, they're prayers, but they're empty, so they're prayerless. Everything about these prayerless prayers are about being seen, false piety, pontification, empty, meaningless words. Friends, God is not honored or moved by that kind of prayerless praying. What He is honored by, what He is moved by, is thoughtful preparation. And a humble heart. And so the point is not your word count, but the posture of your heart. Come ready to listen, speak thoughtful, meaningful words. And then the preacher says in verse 3, For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. And then he says something similar in verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. What Solomon is saying here, it's, it's, it's kind of this proverbial thing. A person who comes into the gathering, into the Lord's house, preoccupied by the busyness of their life. Like daydreaming. Meaning, I'm speaking right now, but your mind is in a thousand other places. You're thinking about uh, the, the Patriots football game later today. You're thinking about that big business deal you've got to do later in the day. You're thinking about that baseball game that you're going to go coach later this afternoon. You're thinking about all sorts of other things except being present and thoughtful right where you are. And in this example, they're thinking about work. And they're daydreaming about their career instead of focusing on the Lord. And when that happens... What the preacher is saying is our words move from quality to quantity. Because we're not being thoughtful and mindful. We just start spewing out a bunch of empty words. Instead of meaningful words, they're meaningless. They lack lack thoughtfulness and attention. And the preacher says, don't be rash. Don't be hasty. We tend to talk too much. So instead, come with an undivided heart that seeks to listen. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God... Do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. 
Let your mouth lead you, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should your God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So he's given kind of a specific example here about bowing vows to God. The Old Testament never demands that we make these vows to God, but it says if you do and you make a vow to God, you should keep it. Don't be thoughtless in making vows to God. What he's saying is a lot of times when people get in a bind, they feel this pressure to make these vow to gods and we're reactive and we're thoughtless and hasty. So we'll say things like this. God, if you'll just get me out of this bind, then I'll go to church more. Or God, if you make this present suffering go away, then I'll start praying and reading my Bible more. God, if you will just give me this, then I'll do that. And you don't have to uh, raise your hand, but I know we've all done that before. And the preacher is warning against this kind of reactive, thoughtless, religious hypocrisy where we say these vows to God, but we don't actually mean them. Because if we were meaningful about reading our Bibles more and praying more, we would just do that. You don't need a vow to do that. Let your yes be yes. So he's saying, don't be hasty with your words. You can't manipulate God. You don't get to negotiate with God. You don't really bring anything to the table that he needs anyway. And God takes no pleasure in empty promises. So instead of making promises you never intend to keep, just be thoughtful and measured and worshipful with your words. David Gibson writes, when we pray, we tend to think it's like talking into a spiritual microphone and with God listening on the other end with a heavenly set of earphones. Can you picture him there? But in fact, when we pray, God is listening to us with a spiritual stethoscope. Just like the doctor who says, let me hear you breathe. He listens in to what we cannot see and so learns the truth about us. See, God is listening and seeing our hearts. So just because you heap up empty words, you cannot fool him. You cannot manipulate him. So the preacher says, be quick to hear and slow to speak. When we stop talking and open up our hearts, we come ready to hear and receive God's words. So how do we worship God in spirit and truth? Preacher first said, pay attention to your steps. Second, let your words be few. And third, stand in awe of God. Last phrase, God is the one you must fear. In the Bible, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and destruction, instruction. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Here's what it means. It means that God has your highest affection, your greatest allegiance, and your undivided attention. It's about your allegiance, your affection, and attention. Meaning there's, there's nothing or no one to whom you give greater loyalty and fidelity. There's nothing or no one who has a greater uh, access to your heart. There's nothing or no one who takes up more of your focus and your thought life. That word for fear means breathtaking reverence. It means you stand in awe of God. And not only is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom, here Solomon's saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of worship. When you fear the Lord, it means you take him seriously. It means you really understand 
who he is and who you are. And it means you live with this desire to please the Lord. It means that you dread the idea that your life might be patterned in such a way as to bring dishonor to his name. Ray Ortland describes the fear of the Lord like this. The fear of the Lord is another way of describing trust in the Lord. But the word fear adds connotations of reverence and awe. This is so good. The fear of the Lord is the opposite of glib shallowness. Glib shallowness. We fear that we might grieve the one who loves us so. This wholesome fear, the Bible says, is a teachable humility. It's a total openness to doing God's will. It's repentance and turning away from evil. It translates into simple, practical obedience to God's word. See, friends, worship begins and ends with considering who God is and what he's done for us. And when the reality of God and the enormity of, of what he has done to secure a relationship with us, it should elicit, meaning stir up, draw up a breathtaking reverence and awe in us. And if you find yourself lacking that, it means you haven't fully comprehended who he is and what he's done for you. Just think of the pride and the foolishness it requires to approach God with a glib shallowness. And yet we do it all the time. So how do we stop playing games? How do we stop playing church and stand in awe of God? Let's go back to Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful in the temple there was an enormous curtain a thick curtain multi-layered curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple and inside that most holy sanctuary was where the presence of god dwelled nobody could enter in and live if you approached that curtain with a glib shallowness and just peeked your pinky inside you would drop dead right there no one could enter and live one person one time a year could enter after uh, an immense ritual of purification. And the only reason to do so was to offer atonement for the sins of the people of God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that the death of Christ tore that curtain temple into two. When Jesus died on the cross, he opened up that temple so that you and I could have confidence to draw near to the Lord. Not in the outer courts, but all the way into the most holy place with confidence to draw near to the Lord. And when my mind and heart and soul and strength begins to really grapple with the reality... That God sees all of the sin in me and yet has paid for it in Christ. Not only will I desire to draw near to him, I will do so by standing in awe of him and stop playing games. Like the writer says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. That word for true heart is this word sincerity. 
It means genuineness. Friends, God's extension of intimacy is never an excuse for flippancy. God is inviting us to draw near, but he, but he cares about our approach to him. The curtain has been torn in two. So yes, we can approach the Lord in a way that people in uh, old, the Old Testament could never have dreamed, us, dreamed of. Not only can we, but we're welcomed. We're invited. We, we are not some stranger entering the house of the Lord. We are sons and daughters. And that is a beautiful thing. It's an invitation to intimacy and relationship. But friends, let's never do so flippantly. Let's never do so with that kind of shallow glibness that forgets that God is God and we are not. God doesn't become less holy or less awesome to those who are in Christ. In fact, it's in, if anything, the more I recognize who I am in Christ, the more I become aware of my sin, more aware of my need, and more in, in awe that God would look at me and love me and give himself up for me. In Christ, God's holiness should not become shallower, but it should become deeper. And our breathtaking reverence should become all the more deep. Friends, Jesus said in John chapter 4 that an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. So how do we do that? We pay attention to our steps. Make a commitment to regularly gathering with God's people. Not in a legalistic way. It doesn't earn anything else for you. But in a committed way to say, I need to be with God's people under God's word so that I can yet again stir up my heart in affectionate worship for him. Be thoughtful and prepared as you come to the Lord. Be on time. Be thoughtful and ready to listen. Let your words be few, the preacher says. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Don't fill your prayers with thoughtless Christian jargon and stand in awe of him. Draw near to the Lord. You are welcomed into his presence and do so with breathtaking reverence, knowing that the invitation has been written by the blood of Christ. Let's pray.